This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. Mass shootings account for only a small fraction of the 15,000 or so murders done every year in the United States with a gun. When a murder happens in America, it's almost always with a gun. And that gun is almost always illegal. The same is true in Latin America, only the difference there is that the illegal guns are coming from us, from the United States, on the black market. Reducing gun violence requires stemming the steady flow of firearms into that black market, says investigative journalist Yoan Grillo. He's a contributor to The New York Times, and his new book is called Blood, Gun, Money, How America Arms, Gangs, and Cartels. Mr. Grillo is based in Mexico City, and he's with me now. Thank you for taking some time today. Great to be here. What do we mean by illegal gun, illegal firearm? Yeah, so... You know, in the United States, you've got the biggest legal firearms market in the world by far. I mean, there's more guns in civilian hands in the US and the next 25 countries combined. Uh, But also there's a parallel illegal black market in, in firearms. And that's when guns are being sold illegally to, you know, deliberately to criminals with felonies drug dealers, drug cartels, in some cases, terrorist organizations, guerrilla organizations, and it gets into the international market in in gun running. Mm. That's the the illegal market. Okay. Okay. So so when we say that um, most homicides in the United States are are, are done with an illegal gun, it's, it's an illegally possessed gun. Um, the gun, the gun itself is legal to exist in the United States and to even be sold. But but um, but all the laws have not been followed for that person to possess that gun. Yeah, the vast majority of guns, uh, you know, in, in the world and in the United States are made in legal factories, either in the United States or in, you know, often in Europe, in, in, in Germany, Italy, um, Eastern Europe for the AK-47s um, imported into the United States legally sold at one point legally and then crossed that invisible line through these different me- you know, methods that people bring them, gun traffickers bring them. Mm. But like in this example of how uh, an illegal gun, what I mean by an illegal gun in the United States in a gun murder, I have in, in the book a profile with a, a gun, somebody trafficking guns into Baltimore, Maryland, one of the most murderous cities in the United States. And he brings in guns and sells them to drug dealers and other people who want guns. So they're buying them from an illegal gun dealer, having that gun, they've got no, they, they, there was no paperwork done. And the guy knew that, they, you know, that they, they weren't illegally allowed to gun, he, you know, illegally allowed to have a gun. Hmm. He knew that they were using it to protect their drug dealing that could carry out for a murder. So, um, so a drug dealer in a case like that in Baltimore can't just, somebody who wants to use a gun for to protect their drug dealing uh, enterprise, it, that person can't just go into a pawn shop or a gun shop or, you know, a, a sporting goods store and and buy a gun on the up and up. So many of the drug dealers have felonies. So, you know, if you have a felony conviction, you're prohibited from buying a firearm. Now, some of them do get around that with private sale, private sales. So if you're buying from somebody with, you know, supposedly a collector, there's no paperwork involved. They say they're not a criminal. They can acquire guns sometimes those ways. Mm. But like somebody who's a felony, who's got a felony offense, they're not allowed to get a gun. Some of the people selling guns on the corners in Baltimore are 15, 16, 17 years old and underage there. Um, and in the city, it's harder to get guns now. So they're often coming in from Virginia, Georgia, other other states. T- tell me a little more then about that process. Uh, this um, this gun gun dealer uh, that you spoke with, this illegal um, gun runner, I guess. Um, w- w- was there a lot of money in this business for him? Why was he doing it, and where was he getting the guns exactly? Yeah, so he he began as a drug dealer on the corners in Baltimore. And uh, right away, he started 
moving some guns because people would come from places like Virginia um, to buy drugs and they bring sometimes guns to trade. They, they bring guns. They might, you know, some of their families might have gun stores or guns. Some of these drug addicts will steal guns from their own family or whatever, find something to, to trade up. So bring there to trade up for, for heroin. So he started moving guns that way. Then he realized that the bigger money was to go down to Georgia, particularly where he had a connection, acquire a bunch of firearms, take them to Baltimore and sell them for triple the amount of money. Mm. Now he says, you know, he said very quickly that there's, there's, there's 19, there's like 1,000, there's, there's 950, you know, people selling drugs in the corners, all of them are gonna want two guns, you know, one gun to have with them, one gun stashed away. So you've got a constant supply of, of of customers there and you can make some quite big money. He even had other scams involved, like he would acquire the guns, sometimes by doing a, uh, by using what's known as straw buyers. Now, straw buyers is somebody with a clean record and they're paid to buy a gun uh, for a criminal. And they're paid very little money. It's often like things like $50 for a pistol, $100 for a rifle, more for some of the bigger guns like Barrett 50s, which they use in Mexico. They're paid so little because the punishments are very, very, very slack. They'll often only, only get probation for lying on the form called the 4473 and declare they haven't got a felony offence and they're not uh, mentally ill and so forth. They're not a drug use. So these are the questions on the form. And then they provide the government very little money. Now, this, this, this dealer chain in Baltimore, a profile, he had an added scam where he'd get that person to buy the guns for him. Then they would declare a theft, make money from the insurance and make some more mm. money that way, and then take the, the guns to uh, um, up to uh, Baltimore and sell them there. And the and a very similar, maybe the identical process it takes place when guns um, are purchased legally in the United States or through a straw buyer, so ostensibly legally, although it's illegal. <laughs> and then uh, and, the, and then they, they funnel across the border into Mexico and, and parts further south. Is that correct? Yep, it, it's part of the same. I mean, I call it an iron river that, you know, you had, people talked about the iron pipeline in the United States from places like Georgia to places like Baltimore and New York and Washington. And this iron river to Mexico, I think it's one big waterway of these things are connected. One of the differences with the guns going down to Mexico is the scale is mind-boggling. People are buying guns, I mean, huge amounts. And you see the cases of people, you know, you know, it's this single one single truck going over the border with 167 rifles. Uh, you know, there's people just walking into shops and buying, you know, 10 AK-47s at a time, identical AK-47s. Wait, 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 wait. Somebody, somebody just, you can just buy 10 AK-47s? Yeah, I mean, this is some of the crazy stuff. Uh, I mean, there's one particular case that I traced um, of, of a couple of firearms using the murder of an American agent in Mexico. And, and uh, in one of those cases, somebody walked in and bought 10 identical AK-47s, um, walked out with those and, and, and legally were, i mean like that didn't raise any like yeah nobody didn't, didn't, uh, nobody says like oh this is maybe worrisome why do you need 10 ak-47s like in the united states you don't have to justify why you're buying them there's no like limit on the number or or the firepower you can purchase at a moment like that well f following following some of these scandals in that, this particular case they they made it a limit in the border states, if you're buying rifles in the border states, because they knew the Mexican cartels are getting so many of these mass buyings there, they said then you should call the ATF, mm -hmm. but that's only in the border states. That's not in the states above, so they can still carry on and go to the above. There's mm -hmm. a case um, which one, I mean, and, and this is why some of the stuff I found out in this research for this book is so mind boggling. And I feel that there's not really any attempt to stop this gun trafficking to the cartels and, and gangs. This is one case of somebody who bought in a single sale 85 guns. Now, at a at a gun like at a gun show or at a at a just a gun at a gun, a gun, a gun store. store 85 guns. Okay. Now this guy was just supposedly a collector walking in and buying them I and he's not a licensed dealer. Mm. He's a collector and he's buying them for gangs. But how can there's no red flags of somebody walked in uh, and bought 85 guns um and 
so these kind of things. But, oh, but he had to he had to pass a background check, right? To you passed a background check, but I mean, even even somebody walking and passing a background check, why would you need eighty five guns? Right? Why would a regular person just just walk in and say, "I'm going to buy eighty five guns today, please"? Just feel like having lots of guns in my house. Mm-hmm. Now, some people, what they do is a, is a method of the way these are trafficked is people buying those big quantities of guns. Another case, I've got somebody who bought more than a thousand guns and just resold them to criminals and resold them to criminals using the private sales. And the ATF, the, which is the, you know, the, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Farms and Explosives, the gun police, they caught onto this one guy and were recording conversations with him as he was selling guns to criminals that he bought in large numbers. And in the one case, the guys of the ATF agent said, look, you know, I'm a criminal. I can't I can't legally have a gun. And the guy said, oh, well, don't kill anybody. Kind of made a joke about it. Mm. Um, but he was actually moving. These guns were being sold and they were traced to various murders that they that they, they were going to. In in uh, Latin America. Uh, yeah, that, that case was coming out of Florida and they were traced to murders in Colombia and Puerto Rico. Okay, so you mentioned, Young Grillo, the, the, the gun police, the uh, ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. Um, why would the ATF have difficulty catching and stopping a situation like you just described, where somebody is buying so many guns and clearly it's a shady thing that ought to be looked into? Yeah, so the, the ATF is, is a curious agency with a lot of contradictions there um anybody listening to this who, who kind of has followed the gun issue a lot um might right away talk about fast and furious which mm-hmm. is the big uh undercover operation by the atf which went very wrong and is a very bad stain on the agency now fast and furious was a big operation where they watched almost two thousand firearms in one stage of this operation be trafficked to mexico and they ended up in the hands of cartels, um, including in the that last safe house of the, the gangster El Chapo before he was caught and taken to the United States on trial. And you say the ATF watched and the idea was that they were going to um, catch the big the big fish further down the line and then eventually round up all those guns and make sure that they didn't get into bad hands. But they but that didn't work out that way. That's exactly right. Yeah, they, they, they had these ideas. They tried to put these kind of chips in the guns where they could trace them. Mm. They didn't work very well. You know, the, the vast majority of the guns, they never recaptured. Um, and they some of them ended up as far down as Colombia, you know, moving around. That was certainly a big stain. I did, did you know, in the book, of course, the book and the research, spent a lot of time with ATF agents, talked to people who'd gone in deep undercover, including up with biker gangs. Um, and tried to really understand what's going on with this agency. Now, I, I do see that you have things like the ATF has these certain um, like padlocks on them, certain locks on them and restrictions on them that no other federal agency has. Mm. One of the because of the, the kind of intensity of gun politics and, and and doing this book, I mean, I I came to this. I mean, I've got I respect the American Second Amendment. Uh, I'm not arguing in this book against the American right to have guns. Um, I just looking at this kind of crazy issue of how guns are going to criminals and gangs and cartels and feeling that basic enforcement is not really done on this or how this situation is so crazy. Now, one of the things I discovered as well is I went to the ATF tracing center, which is in West Virginia, and that's where they trace all the firearms from crime scenes in the United States and all the guns American guns that go around the world and they reach more than 130 countries. Now, one of the crazy things there is if a smoking gun is found at a crime scene, literally you've got the body on the floor, the person has dumped the smoking gun and the policeman has it, he phones up the tracer and says, give me a trace on this gun, here's the serial number. And the ATF tracer says, we can't trace that. Digitally. Trace it. Weird. Sorry, let me just. So, and tracing the gun would accomplish what? So that's tracing it to where was this gun last purchased or sold? Like, what record do we have of of the hands that this gun has passed through? 
Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, exactly. If you know, if he's got a legal gun, I know who owns the gun. It's like if there's a car in a hit and run, and mm. you have the plates right away. The first thing police do is just run the plates. Okay. And bang, whose car is that? Okay, which could, which might lead somewhere, or it might lead nowhere in the case of a gun, especially if it's been, you know, sort of trafficked and passed through a lot of hands, and you know, illegal purchased by a straw buyer or whatever. It might not. The trace might not lead anywhere, but still, it's the place that you start. And what happens when police call the ATF with the serial number? number of a smoking gun yeah so so they'll they'll phone up and, and it's, it, the ATF said a lot of the local cops don't know the law on this they'll phone up and say give me the trace you know give me the number you know give me the give me the name of the person and they say oh, we can't do that we're not we're legally not allowed to do that and so they phone up they have to go through a process of because they're, they're not allowed to have digital databases of gun records that's against the law so they go through this long process of calling up the the company which made the gun who did they sell to the distributor go through a long process mm-hmm. and the average time is 11 days and um, which you know which is quite slow for an, an murder investigation as you say it can then lead to a brick wall if the gun then has gone into the black market and then it's kind of lost sight as well but it but there's no actual computer database f- where they could type in the serial number and pop up the results. I mean, but surely those records exist. Like there could be a database. Yeah. Well, you see, so so there, what you have is you have you you have again these these laws are framed in ways. There's been a lot of back and forth and fighting. So they're legally not allowed to have a digital database for gun records, and that's a big thing defended by gun owners. Mm. What you have is you have so they have to phone up the gun shops and ask the gun shops to look at their records. Now, when a gun shop goes out of business to keep those records alive, they'll take them to this ATF trace center, but they're not allowed to have them on computer. So you have these huge, huge mountains of paper. It's just, it's just it's, it's an amazing sight to see in this trace center. There's just like mountains and mountains of bits of paper on pallets. And one of the kind of again one of the weird things is if 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 you have a gun shop itself had its records on a computer, but they can't keep them on a computer and make them searchable, so then they'll print them out into bits of paper and add them to these mountains of, pa- uh, of bits of paper in the in the trade center. If there if there if there was a digital database of gun ownership, or, or at least. I mean, I don't know, like if there was a way to do it that would satisfy the Second Amendment defenders who don't want the government to know who has guns because they don't want the government to come round up their guns. Um, it, I mean, if if the ATF were allowed to to maintain this digitally, would that would that address any of the problems we've discussed here about illegal guns flowing into the black market? In terms of crime investigations, I mean, that would speed up. And there are there are cases where people are. are have with guns in their name are, are committing crimes mm. and so it would definitely speed up getting to those people it would speed up the processes but i think the the real things that i look at in the book uh, and i don't you know really advocate for this and it's not a, a work of preaching in the book it's a work of investigation what i look at as is is really the four ways that guns go to criminals so the straw buying the private sale loophole Another one is theft. Another one is buying gun parts off the internet and making these ghost guns. And those four ways that guns, like trying to trying to reduce guns going to criminals in those ways, I think could have a huge impact. Uh, I mean, private sale, you know, universal background checks, which so that there are no there are not these loopholes anymore, so that you can buy a gun without paperwork. Um, from a supposed collector um, that can be closed. And there's, there's a bill right now in Congress and there's support of, according to one survey, by 89% of Americans, including 81% of conservatives for, for that. The idea of simply these straw purchases, if you're going to a shop and you're buying guns and you know they're going to cartels, you know they're going to gangsters, um, they're doing jail time for those, those things rather than simply getting probation um, for lying on the form when those guns can be used to murder children in some cases. 
I'm speaking with Yoan Grillo, who is a Mexico City-based investigative journalist. He's a contributor to The New York Times. And we're talking about his new book called Blood, Gun, Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels. I want to talk a little more about the, the possible solutions here and also about the real um, human consequences, the costs of this uh, black market for firearms that flows from the United States into Latin America. Uh, we do need to take a very quick break here on Top of Mind. We'll be back with Yoan Grillo. I'm Julie Rose. Stay with us. It's good to have you along for Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Speaking with Yoan Grillo, who is an investigative journalist, a contributor to The New York Times. He's based in Mexico City, and his new book is called Blood, Gun, Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels. So just before we took a very quick break, Yoan, you, you were um, mentioning the, the four ways in which guns end up in the black market. And as we established early on in our conversation it is guns from the black market that are implicated in the majority of um, gun violence murders in the United States and in Latin America. Um, so let, let's let's flesh out those solutions a bit more. Um, you, you mentioned the, the private sales loophole. So there is a way where I don't have to pass a background check if I'm going to buy a gun um, in the United States. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, sure. So in the book, another person I talked to in profile was a gun trafficker who's in prison in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico um, on firearms charges. He's doing eight years. Now, he was driving every weekend from Mexico up to Dallas, and he was buying about a dozen AR-15s every weekend and driving hmm. them back into Mexico, selling them to largely to cartel affiliates. He was paying the cartel for permission to do the gun trafficking, he was working with two friends, the operation, making a lot of money because he was selling, buying these AR-15s for about $700 a time in the, in the gun shows and selling them for 2,100, 2,200, 2,300, so triple the amount of money. So you can do the maths and see how much money he was making there. Now he would go up to the gun show and he would buy them with no paperwork whatsoever. So nothing at all, no paper trail at all. And he described it to me as this black market. You know, like we go there, there's a black market at the gun show where they, you know, people can sell you with no paperwork. It was actually legal or, 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 or in, in, a, in a gray area of the law. Now you have a, a, a part of the law, an exemption for the law. So that's why people call it the loophole, where somebody who's a private, uh, if it's a private sale, a collector and making a private sale, they don't have to go through have paperwork or, um, or or do background checks. It's like if I'm just selling to you um, a um, <laughs> like a guitar, an old guitar I have. I'm not a guitar seller. I'm just selling an old guitar. You know, here it is. Give me the cash, and that, that's fine. Mm. So they're saying guns should be treated like that. However, people are abusing that loophole and making money in the business of selling guns. And deliberately selling them to people who can't, who don't want paper trail there. So you see these cases again and again of traffickers like uh, Jorge, who I talked to, taking them down to cartels in Mexico, who were taking advantage of this and the sellers there. So and I went up to one of the gun shows, one in the, in Mesquite, which is a part of the Dallas urban area. We went in recording the people offering guns there. And there were people we have on tape offering new AR-15s, unfired, no paperwork, cash out the door. Hmm. They were offering these there. I saw in front of me a woman who said she couldn't buy, she, you know, she couldn't get guns legally and buying a gun of somebody as well, you know, basically admitting she had a criminal record and buying a gun. So this is something which definitely happens. And there's hmm. other cases which I've got, which the ATF have, and you see the paperwork of people moving up to a thousand guns. Now, I also talked to some gun sellers who are good people and who don't want this happening. One guy I, I look at is a guy in Arizona, a guy called Mike Detty, who was a, uh, sold AR-15s. He knew, knew about this whole business of them going to cartels in Mexico. He didn't want this and he became a confidential informant for the ATF. Now then he got very, very much you know, burned and kind of caught up in this whole Fast and Furious scandal. So he didn't come out very well with this. 
but there are a lot of very conscientious gun sellers, but there are people out there, and he himself describes them as well, these people abusing the law um, and selling guns to gun traffickers. Another thing that you that you mentioned just before the break that, that could make a difference would be to um, create stiffer penalties for straw buyers who get caught, because it, currently it's, it's just kind of a, a slap on the hand. Is that right? If you get caught buying a gun for someone else or selling it to someone else? Yeah, it is. Now, you, you wouldn't even need a law change here. The law actually says you can give people up to 10 years for this. But in the recommended sentencing, so the sentencing guidelines, which mm-hmm. people strict to, is probation if somebody's caught with a straw buyer. Now, in most, some of these cases, and there's cases, you know, I look at here in Mexico where you've got a straw buyer, they're buying a gun, they know it's going to the cartels, they've got direct link to people connected to cartels. That gun then goes down. It's used in horrific massacres here that I'm covering. I mean, I'm covering things like 49 bodies being dumped, um, you know, entire families being you know, massacred. And, you know, you see, you know, cases of a, a, a young girl who gets, you know, who got hit by a stray bullet when she was 12 years old and put on a, in a wheelchair, paralyzed from the waist down and has now passed away at the age of 17. So you see this horrific impact of these guns and the people are just getting, and they know they're going to cartels, just getting probation. Now, in some cases in the United States, when people then, like in the Columbine massacre, there was some straw buying involved in that. And then because there was huge pressure on it, then they say, we're going to give some jail time to these people because look, these guns are being, you know, we've got parents here we're dealing with. We've got human faces here Mm. we're dealing with. We need some jail time. We're going to give these people some time and some years in prison. But most of these cases, people are not getting it, even when they, you know, they know they're going. So just simply, you know, moving up the the, the sentencing guidelines. Now, and, and, you know, and I want to expand for just a moment on, on what you've what you've just said there, because one of the arguments, at least one of the lessons I took away from your book, Blood, Gun, yeah. Money, is that if while gun violence is very bad in some corners of America, it is more prevalent and often more gruesome in in Mexico and Honduras and El Salvador, some of what you were just describing, the murders that you're covering. and 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 do you, and you think that if Americans, if that kind of thing were happening, on the streets of the United States, there would be a different kind of appetite for cracking down on the black market. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, a classic case is the 50 caliber, the Barrett 50. So this is, you know, a gun which fires these very large bullets. They're like the size of small Coca-Cola bottles. Uh, they can fire, you know, a, a mile. It can be used as a sniper rifle or it can be used as an anti-material rifle. Now you see these used by cartels here. They use them in ambushes on police and, and, and military convoys from the mountainside. Now, if police in the United States were getting hammered with these 50 cows, if, if criminals were like, you know, whacking them with this, police would say, we're going to have to crack down on this. Now, there's some basic stuff. Again, now, the fifth, so these, these guns, 50 cows, they cost often north of $10,000. I mean, you can check it out on the, on the internet. You can see them for 15000 sometimes, these kind of prices. Now, there's cases where, a supposed housewife is going around buying six of these things, paying in cash. Um, where you have twenty-three-year-old kids um, walking in, and you know, fifteen thousand dollars in cash for a fifty cal. Mm-hmm. You know, there's got to be. You know, you could just simply have an extended background check and just check out who's buying these guns. If they are hobbyists, you know, because you have these hobbyists in the United States who like fifty cals, and I talked to some of these guys. I went to the uh, the SHOT Show in Las Vegas, the biggest firearms trade show in the world, and talked to some of these guys who like to have them to, to kind of just blow apart stuff in the countryside. If that's what they are, okay, that's okay. But if they are you know, very obviously connected to cartels, just, just want to check on that and, and find that. And if that was happening in the United States, sure, there'd be pressure on this. You mentioned also that um, cracking down on theft, preventing theft could also help stem the flow of guns in the black market. How would that work? So right now, and again, this gets to the, the back and forth over gun laws. If somebody's looking after pharmacies in the United States, there's, there's federal laws and you have to have pharmacies locked up and so forth to try and stop people just robbing pharmacies. If you're keeping money like a bank, you know, there's, there's federal laws. In firearms, there's no federal laws about storage for gun sellers. 
So some of these places, there's guns in unlocked cabinets. There's video of this, CCTV, of people going into these stores, 20 seconds, just opening the cabinets, filling up bags with guns and walking out. The gun owner got the insurance money. The people get away with the guns. And the guns then go on the black market. Simply having federal law saying you're going to have to lock up. If you've got a bunch of guns, you have to keep them in a locked, you know, have, have a lock on that on that cabinet and that kind of thing. Again, very, very low hanging fruit, which you see is not being done to stop these guns going to the black market. And the final thing you mentioned was ghost guns. These are um, guns that are like homemade through parts that people buy on the Internet. How how big of a contribution do these guns actually make to this problem that you've been describing? Yes, it's a growing issue. Uh, so so unlicensed serialized firearms are the way that the uh, um, the ATF called them. They said that you know I said in the pre- in the press they were going to always call them ghost guns. It's it's more of a catchy way of saying this. Um, if I was in Los Angeles and they're telling me in Los Angeles now, a third to forty percent of the guns they're seeing in the hands of criminals in Los Angeles and now these ghost guns. So it's a growing problem there. There's also these ghost guns going down to Mexico, to Latin America, the parts going down them being assembled here. There was a workshop in Guadalajara linked to a cartel called the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, which is also named as one of the five most dangerous criminal organizations in the world by the United States State Department. Uh, And they were building up AR-15s from gun parts now, there are attempts to say, well, people who are buying these gun parts, we still want them to pass background checks. So we'll say a certain part of a gun, uh, like what they call the lower receiver, is going to be subject to a background check. Um, however, there's also ways of people selling them almost ready and just drill a hole in these things. Hmm. So again, there's people marketing on the internet quite deliberately to get around gun laws and there's bills to simply say that if people are you know buying kits to assemble guns should be subject to all the same laws governing people buying guns around the united states rather than allowing these kind of loopholes in and then people buy these things make these things and can sell them very easily um, and then then they've got more value because they haven't got any serial numbers. They've got even more value to criminals. Look, I mean, Americans have a lot of guns. That's not going to change. Um, you know, there's an American gun culture which is quite distinct. That's not going to change overnight. Uh, 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 but just some of this, you know, simple low-hanging fruit, and the vast majority of gun owners, I believe, are fine. Don't want guns going to criminals. Don't want guns going to killers and so forth. Now you have a certain edge of on the kind of extreme end of the gun movement. And I also interview in the book, a militia member, one of the people who went down to the Michigan state capital. Um, he, you know, he considered Trump soft on guns mm-hmm. for banning bump stocks. Um, they're kind of against any kind of regulation at all. Um, people who think, well, even if somebody has been in prison and got a felony, they should still be allowed a gun. It's kind of a God given right even if they are a criminal, they should still be allowed that gun. So you've got some people on that extreme end of the movement, but I think the vast majority of people, uh, of gun owners themselves, um, uh, you know, they don't want guns going to cartels. Now, the situation as well, and why this gets kind of quite crazy, is that in Mexico, what you really have here is a mix of crime and war. It really has become like an armed conflict that I've been covering here. You know, when you see the numbers of more than 200,000 people dying from this, 70,000 disappeared, mass graves with more than 250 bodies, massacres of 72 people, gunfights with 500 criminals against 2,000 federal police. You're seeing really a kind of hybrid war, hybrid armed conflict. And the United States is complicit or the gun sellers, or the gun industry is complicit in this, in providing guns to this armed conflict. And again, it's just kind of low hanging fruit of trying to stop this case of, you know, quite a historic case of international gun trafficking. And we're talking about estimates of more than 200,000 firearms a year going into this violence here, more than 2 million over a decade. So that's something again, which, you know, basic measures could try and 
reduce substantially this and reduce the bloodshed being caused on both sides of the border. Yoan Grillo is an investigative journalist based in Mexico City. He contributes to The New York Times, and his latest book is Blood, Gun, Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels. Yoan, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks so much. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind archive. I'm Julie Rose. It's good to have you with us for Top of Mind. Plant-based meat substitutes have come a long way since tofu dogs and black bean burgers. If someone slips you an impossible burger made of plant protein instead of a beef burger, you would be hard-pressed to tell the difference, right down to the pink tinge of the patty, which comes from beet juice rather than blood. It's pretty amazing stuff. But there are people out there for whom only real meat will do. And that is where lab-grown meat comes in. There are dozens and dozens of startups all around the world trying to coax chicken, beef, and fish meat cells to grow in a test tube. San Francisco-based Eat just recently got approval to sell its lab-grown chicken nuggets in Singapore. Cellular biologist Vitor Santo is in charge of the project for Eat Just, where he is director of cellular agriculture. And he's on the line. Mr. Santo, welcome. Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me. Really yeah. nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you, too. Why grow chicken in a lab? What is the problem you're trying to solve here? So the, the reason why we're doing this is because we want to make real meat, delicious meat that we're used to in a much more sustainable way that can be more environmentally friendly, that doesn't involve animal slaughtering, and that can also meet the actual demand for consumption of of animal protein. So for the past few decades, we have seen a tremendous increase in the consumption. And as you very well introduced, you know, there's been a lot of alternative products out there, uh, plant-based replacements, but there's always gonna be a demand for consumption of real meat. So we believe we can provide this alternative and really help to address those issues. Even, you think there will be a demand for real meat even as plant substitutes get more and more realistic? There will still be people who are gonna dig in their heels and say, I want chicken from an actual chicken. Yeah, we believe so because, you know, there's also a little bit of a ceiling, uh, a limit to what these uh, plant-based replacement products can achieve, right? There's always uh, some limitations when it comes to maybe some flavor profiles or textures. So certainly here, uh, we are providing exactly the same product because the composition of cultivated meat is actually the same as uh, conventional meat. We're using the same cells. So in that sense, it provides a lot more versatility and a more robust, let's say, process and product that can really be closer to what people are used to. Mm. Um, what are the ingredients that go into the test tube to make meat in the lab? Right. So what our company does, first of all, we have to identify which cells we we have to use to really grow them in culture to really develop a cultivated meat product. So when you you eat conventional meat, typically uh, the most important aspects are muscle, uh, also the fat component. Maybe some of the blood uh, components are important as well, especially on beef that can give that sort of iron rich content. So we look at all of those and identify the key cells that are really important to be part of the finished product. And then we select those from the, we isolate them from the animals uh, in an isolation process that can be even from a small biopsy. So really tiny amount of cells that does not involve slaughtering. So you don't have to kill the chicken. You just somehow stick a needle in or take take a tissue sample from whatever, like what, from the breast meat of the chicken, if that's what you're trying to make? Pretty much. You can isolate cells from any part of the animal. It can be from the skin. It can be from any organ. It can be from the muscle. It can be from, you know, conventional parts like the, the typical uh, meat tissues like chicken breasts, chicken thigh. So all of those are, are possible to isolate sufficient cells. 
And once we take them to then the culture process, essentially what we do is we feed them with the nutrients that the animals are used to, like proteins, sugars, vitamins, and then the cells kind of like grow in these media, this liquid solution that contains these nutrients. Wait, you're feeding what... you're feeding the cell. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so what is yeah. the what what is the feed that like where do you get that? What what is that made of? So the feed can be extracted from plants. That's, uh, you know, plant extracts are very rich in a lot of these nutrients. So that's typically one of the main uh, sources to, uh, to really feed the cells with. And actually that's where we can uh, use a lot of our knowledge on the plant-based space to really select the best nutrition for the cells. Okay. So in, what does it look like as, when I'm looking at this I guess it's a jar maybe or a vial or something and you've got yeah. you you've got these chicken breast meat cells sort of just floating in this liquid and then how do, how do they turn into a chicken breast? Right. So I would compare this process to like a brewery. So think about uh, fermentation or like where you have these cylindrical vessels, these stainless steel tanks mm. of uh, large volumes of culture. It's almost like a stew. You have these uh, cells in this liquid that is really warm, that mimics the, the temperature of the animal. And the cells are getting like more dense and dense in culture because they are multiplying and forming the tissue. Oh, so they're so, like clumping together. It's like raw ground up chicken meat clumping together. That's right. And then at the end of the process, you just uh, you remove that sort of uh, broth from the culture and again, you sort of isolate the, the cells. So you really concentrate those. And in terms of texture, I would say it typically looks a lot like uh, ground uh, chicken meat. Mm. And then uh, from that moment on, then we can sort of turn that structure into whatever we want. It can be more textured like a chicken breast, or it can be more, maybe more mushy like a chicken nuggets. So it really depends then on how we sort of process that ground chicken um, uh, after the culture is done. Well, okay, so you would turn it into a chicken breast, but I mean, it would be, it wouldn't have like the the muscle um, fibers in it, right? I mean, it would be more like a processed McRib or something. Like a, you know, it'd be like a pressed chicken breast. Actually, there's now a lot of technology even on the plant-based replacements, right? So a lot of the you know, even using soy and other type of proteins in which you can generate that sort of fibrous texture. Hmm. So we actually are applying some of those technologies here as well. But our starting material are the chicken cells that we have expanded in culture. But in terms of the texture and structures, you can actually get pretty close to already a sort of three-dimensional whole cut uh, of meats. And that's pretty exciting. Huh. Um, okay. And and is is that processing of the of the ground chicken slurry <laughs> is that is that also do you have to add a lot of flavorings and uh you know in order like and 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 um minerals in order to get the flavor i mean what is a unflavored chicken breast cell taste like and does it taste like the thing we need it to taste like if we're going to eat it that has been one of our biggest uh, achievements and i think in trying to understand also this technology as it's been evolving Right. And I think it's the biggest advantage when you compare, for instance, with a plant based product. When you use a plant based product, you definitely need to add those flavoring agents to mimic the animal products. But in this case, the animal, the chicken cells, carry the flavors on their own because those are the same cells that you find in conventional chicken. Hmm. And we're feeding them with a very similar diet to the feed that they're usually also the animals have access to. So the flavor profiles are very similar. So how long does it take to grow enough chicken chicken meat cells to like make a chicken breast? So typically the process from that vial you mentioned, like the imagine you start from a very small number of cells and you go uh, up to a like, let's say a thousand liter uh, fermenter where you brew or where you culture the cells typically takes a couple of weeks. Uh, and you're able to harvest like several pounds of chicken from that bioreactor. Okay. Um, and so how does that compare cost-wise? How do, you, how do you scale this to a place where you could actually make enough to make any kind of a dent, but also so that, you know, I'm willing to, I can buy it because right now I can buy chicken breast for 
I mean, what, like two bucks a pound, less than that, depending on the sale. That's right. Yeah. So the cost is currently what we're focusing on the most and also increasing our manufacturing capacity. So and those are actually they go hand on hand. So um, the major cost driver of this technology is actually the feed that uh, we provide to the cells. Um, so that's what we're, our team has been working uh, the most. And then in terms of scale, we are now, uh, you know, especially after our last fundraising, we are now building a large scale manufacturing capacity to be able to start uh, providing these products in, into grocery outlets and not just specific restaurants. So I would say within the next three to five years, you're going to see a pretty significant increase in our availability and also in different countries as well. So you're currently selling the chicken nuggets in Singapore. Well, at least they're available in some restaurants. At how much? How much does a chicken nugget cost that's been through this process? So right now we're selling the chicken nuggets for $23. Uh, so they're usually part of a, a, a dish, right? So they, we serve them. Uh, Wait, finished. $23 a nugget? Not a nugget, so it's just the whole meal. So okay. it's like a meal that incorporates this chicken bites. So typically it's actually a combination of meals. So the whole thing uh, costs $23, which is the pre pretty much a similar price to a premium chicken at this point. Mm. So we do realize it's still expensive. And that's why we, you know, we are working very hard now to, to reduce the cost of production so it can be available for all the consumers. You mentioned that one of the uh, main hurdles you're working on as a team towards scaling and also bringing the cost down is the feed. So can we talk mm -hmm. about that in a little more detail? The um, This is the, it's, it's what the cells kind of float around in, is that right? As they're growing and it has to is it like blood, basically, artificial blood? It's mimicking a, a lot of the components from blood, for sure. Um, and yeah, the reason why uh, that's still a little, a little bit costly is because we are operating at smaller scales. So all the sort of components need to be very customized. And uh, as we are like increasing now manufacturing capacity, producing in larger amounts, we can really... Uh, rely on different type of supply chain and different types of quantities that will decrease the cost significantly. Um, it's also a matter, and not to get too nitty gritty, but it's also a matter of uh, adaptation. So think of ourselves, humans, right? Sometimes we get into a diet, it takes a little bit for us to adapt. Uh, and it's the same thing with, um, with the, these animal cells. We got to kind of like keep them in culture for a while so they're able to maybe adapt to a different type of diet that can be a little bit more efficient. Okay. So, so those are the things we're focused, focused on on our research and development at this point. Aside from the original cells that you extract from a living chicken that survives, right? Yeah. Is, are, are there any other um, pieces of this process that come from animals? So right now, uh, the approval we got in Singapore last year was still uh, uh, using uh, some animal-derived components in the culture media, uh, in the feed that we, we give to the cells. But since then, we have already optimized to be completely animal-free when it comes to those nutrients mm -hmm. that we, we give to the cells. Okay, so, so it's coming so from plants, very, very vegetables. Soon, yeah, very, very soon, everything is going to be uh, animal-free on the feed side, the only animal component will be the, the animal cells. How do you keep um, bacteria from, from, from growing in this culture where the cells are also growing? Yeah, so essentially it's through a very self-contained and sort of uh, following the so-called good manufacturing practices. So we have these stainless steel bioreactors that are, you know, very well sealed, we have operators that are very experienced in the process of cell culture. So this has been demonstrated in other industries, um, specific, specifically in biologics uh, and vaccine production, for instance. So, so it's possible to do it. It's certainly it's very uh, difficult in the sense that it requires a lot of attention, but we have managed to succeed in multiple manufacturing batches mm -hmm. without using antibiotics, which is you know, a great advantage of this technology. So we're keeping sterility without having to rely on antibiotics. It's interesting that you mentioned biomedical, you know, vaccine development. So what you're doing is closer to the kind of process that's used for developing drugs. So, so will ultimately the U.S. government treat your chicken 
as a drug <laughs> that has to pass all the safety standards? Um, or is it going to be a food? Because that's a whole, you know, that, like that's they're set up for a whole different kind of health and safety screening. So in terms of regulatory review, uh, I would say that FDA actually is involved both in the control of uh, drug products, but also food products. So they are actually the ones that uh, in which the jurisdiction falls through for the analysis of the safety and quality of these animal cells for application in finished meat products. Uh, it's actually a shared jurisdiction. So it's FDA upstream and downstream uh, jurisdiction is governed by USDA. Mm. So in that sense, uh, we uh, our company has to discuss uh, our process with uh, both both of those agencies, and we are actively doing that as we speak. Why have you not received that approval in the U.S. if you've already got it in Singapore? So the length of the discussions just went quicker in Singapore. It's been like a process that had started earlier because the Singapore regulatory agency had a framework that was established earlier. So I think in the U.S. there was a lot of discussions yet uh, between the government and also these agencies to figure out how would a regulatory review process would look like to which jurisdiction each section of the process would fall into. And now that is more clear. And because of that, now there is a path uh, to go through and we're doing it. But that's why it, it took a little bit longer. And is there any reason why you're foc focusing on chicken rather than beef or fish or pork? Right. So we do have uh, pork and beef uh, research uh, going right now. Uh, so we're focusing on the major protein uh, proteins that are consumed. So definitely those three are our top priorities. Chicken, you know, is one of the most widely consumed. And our approach is if we can make it happen with chicken, which is one of the cheapest, if not the cheapest uh, uh, meat available out there, then pretty sure we can make it happen for beef and pork as well. So we're using it almost, at, almost as ground zero for the whole technology and to really implement the processes. It's basically the same technology, whatever the meat cell is. That's actually something we have been uh, uh, realizing more and more. A lot of what we are doing for chicken is very applicable to uh, beef and pork. Hmm. So we have uh, beef products already coming up pretty soon and the culture process and scale up the type of nutrients we feed the cells with are very, very similar. So that's something that almost allow us to be species agnostic. Huh. And that will make also the process very efficient because essentially we have the infrastructure, Got we it. have the reactors, we just need to change the cells that we grow them. Vitor Santo is a biomedical engineer and director of cellular agriculture at Eat Just. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Ciara Hewlett, Cleon Wall, and Kyle Remond produced the show. Today's episode was curated from Top of Mind's vast archive of past conversations. I hope you enjoyed hearing some of our favorites. You can find more, lots more, from Top of Mind on the free BYU Radio app. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>